You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to Before They Were Alive, an ongoing and monthly conversation where we are trekking our way through the Disney animated canon, playing our part in a healthy ecosystem between art and criticism and fandom. We don't need a map to find the hidden crags that help us better understand how these films shape our imaginations. Hopefully along the way we enrich the viewing experience and have some fun too. Today we're packing our hiking boots and heading down under in, into 1990s The Rescuers Down Under. This is the 29th movie in the canon, which means at the time of this recording, we are halfway through, although it is a moving target on our uh, end date. So joining me to talk about it is Michael Farmer. Oh, he is magnificent. You're absolutely the hero of the day, Michael. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. <laughs> You're not going to try to say it in an Australian accent? No, I'm I'm not even going to attempt any of that stuff. I just uh, I but know. that's okay because almost nobody in the movie talks with an Australian accent either. That is that is very true. That is I'm, I'm sure one of the the big criticisms of this movie as as far as anybody is still paying attention to this movie. <laughs> it's kind of I feel like it's a it's a bit overshadowed by um, the the rest. It's you know by the movie surrounding it by Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, and then of course we have Aladdin and Lion King coming like. This one I feel like is is the uh, what the black sheep of the family I think is how how I saw it described somewhere. Well, w- one reason for that, and I don't I don't know if you read about this, but do you know what it opened against in 1990 when it came out? Yeah, it came out against Home Alone. Home Alone, yeah. So it was yeah. a big flop because of that, and I think people forget about it because it was a flop. Yeah. So John Candy was huge at the at the time of this, right? I didn't even <laughs> think about that. <laughs> Yeah, he he was a winner either way, I guess. So, but how big do you have to be to be in two? I mean, obviously, like, uh, yeah, two. He was a he was a. I forget how big a star he was at the time. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, he was but, one of the big comedy stars. Do you do you remember his cartoon series Camp Candy? I do not remember that. No, I have no recollection of that. I haven't tried to look it up, but I know for a fact that there was a show called Camp Candy when I was a kid, and he um he was the the owner slash head counselor at a uh, summer camp. Sounds fascinating. <laughs> I remember I liked it, but I also didn't really have a sense of who John Candy was because, you know, as a kid, I certainly didn't watch Planes and Trains and Automobiles or um, any of the other movies he was in. I guess I saw Home Alone. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's basically my experience with him as Home Alone and this movie. So, and I don't want to. I don't want to have. Uh, Rescuers Down Under, overshadowed by Home Alone again, but uh, his performance in Home Alone is really remarkable. Like it's a really sensitive but still really funny performance. Um, and I'm going to suggest humbly that that's a better performance than his performance here as Wilbur the Albatross. Yeah, Wilbur. Unfortunately, um, well, I think I think what they're going for was oh, Oliver was. It was Oliver, right? Orville. Orville. Yeah, sorry. Orville. <laughs> um, getting my Disney lines crossed. Um, <laughs> Orville was – I mean he was really great, but he was such a small part, and I think they they tried to expand it and give it a – giving him a – like the secondary B storyline, and there just – there wasn't much to that storyline, unfortunately. His back gets hurt, and they take him to a, to a doctor's office, and yeah, there's there's really not much to say about it. It was yeah. – yeah, I, I mean, I think a very unsuccessful B story. It, it felt um, like something out of a television cartoon rather than a movie. Yeah, I guess B stories are something that they're still struggling to get together at, at this point because this is uh, something that we talked about um, a few episodes back with um, Fox and the Hound. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, B, the B story there um, with you know whatever the the woodpecker and stuff. Just you know, just doesn't. 
didn't seem to fit the movie and I, I feel like it's kind of the same thing here it just doesn't it doesn't quite fit this movie yeah but his initial performance in this movie when they first meet him and he's reluctant to go and then he uh th- then he hears about what's happening and he, he kind of springs to life i thought i thought that was a, a a better performance than the kind of over over the top stuff he does for the rest of the movie so no no disrespect to the estate of john candy but uh, i liked him better in home alone yeah no, absolutely. I, I I agree. I think the if if it had been left at him dropping them off in Australia, um, it, it would have been a totally fine part. But it was it was the fact that they tried to expand it um, that it was it was too much of a good thing, I guess. Well, and it, it also falls victim to something that I've described as the Michael Eisner effect, uh, which is. Just the fact that he yells "cowabunga" two or three times in this movie sh- mm-hmm. shows you shows you how hard they're trying to make this hip with the youths of today, uh, or at least the youths of today <laughs> of 1990. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's not a good look as the youths of today in 2020 say. <laughs> That's right. I I had kind of forgotten about the word "cowabunga" until I watched this movie. So. Right. Yeah, you, you can just feel the focus group uh, talking about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and saying, oh, well, they're popular. What yeah. makes them popular? Oh, it must be the word cowabunga, which they throw around. <laughs> or, yeah. or, or Wilbur should say cowabunga all the time. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that going around in this movie. I mean, I think the entire f- fact that it's in Australia is because of Crocodile Dundee. Um, yeah, it could be. Yeah, so... Well, and the, the the character Jake, the kangaroo mouse, is is clearly a version of Crocodile Dundee. Yeah, the one thing I will say for that uh, little be real is that there's there's just one moment where they're where they're um they're putting him on the uh, the stretcher and they so they're using pulleys to do it and the mice are you know heave hoeing and it's a it's a nice little throwback I thought to uh, Cinderella. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, sure. As when they're pulling up the dress, but that's about the only thing that I will I will mention there on on that. Um, but yeah, this movie uh, they were they were clearly going for um, that action adventure, Crocodile Dundee, Indiana Jones, maybe. Um, oh yeah, oh, there's definitely some Indiana Jones here uh, type thing, and um, I, I, the the area where they were successful or unsuccessful, I guess, depending on how you want to look at it, was is that there's really no quiet moments in this movie at all. It's it's um it starts with um you're zoomed in on uh, a little bug of some kind, and then the drums kick in, and you start zooming uh, across the Africa or the not the African, sorry, the Australian plains, and then uh, it really it never slows down. Like you, you're always on the move. There's always something happening. Uh, even even little moments that seem like uh, they should be a quiet moment are are interrupted. Um, there's there's always something. Uh, this this movie is very very much more fast-paced than, than most of what we've seen from Disney so far. Well, I, I want to make a case for one small, quiet moment that I think was really expertly done, uh, which is the moment that the park ranger, or ranger, or whatever, comes to Cody's mother with his destroyed backpack, which they've found in the mouths of the crocodiles or whatever, and you don't even see her whole face. It's just below the nose, and her grief is presented silently but i think really effectively i thought mm-hmm. that was a very moving moment but that I, that is about the closest thing you get to a quiet moment in this movie you're right yeah and i'd kind of overlooked that one i guess because it's it is off the main characters and um yeah it, it is you're right that they did a good job of i think knowing knowing what they could do you know like um having having it all in her body language rather than in her face um i think it, it suits the animation well and uh you hear the voiceover of the of the ranger uh, on the radio at the same time like kind of announcing the news rather than her uh rec- like like you said it's silent from her end so i think i think all of that was like you said it's a good choice on their part to to keep that scene uh, from not coming off as really cheesy or or overwrought or something, but but I mean you're, you're absolutely right that this is this is more or less a nonstop movie uh, without a whole lot of of downtime, which makes it a weird sequel to the Rescuers, 
which is a very, as we discussed uh, a year ago or whatever we talked about it, The Rescuers is a very sad, quiet, melancholy movie. It's it's There's action sequences in it, but I wouldn't call that an action movie, and this is certainly an action movie. So it's weird that this is a sequel to that. It's it's really weird. It, it, it even like my kids were a little thrown off by it because um, I told them we were watching the rescuers down under, and we were, you know, you're you're, I don't know, fifteen minutes into the movie before you even see a mouse. You know? Eighteen minutes. It takes eighteen minutes for the rescuers themselves to show up. Okay, and so yeah, like they, at one point they said, "I thought this was a rescuers movie," and so um, it's like they're they're coming, but. It does take a long time, I feel like, for the the plots to intersect where they finally catch up with Cody. Yeah, it it feels almost like they had already scripted a movie about Cody and then they just kind of slid the rescuers in. I mean, they do rescue him, to be fair. Um, and, And there's some character moments with them, but a lot of what we get of them feels left over from the first movie. Just just feels like a retread. Uh, And then they're not in more than half of the movie, I would say, uh, frame for frame. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, it's definitely Cody's movie. So. so so it's weird. If you if you liked The Rescuers, you're probably already a little weird because The Rescuers is a weird movie to like. And you, I say this as someone who liked it very much. Um, but I can't imagine someone who loves The Rescuers loving The Rescuers Down Under. They're just too different. Yeah. Even the... Um even the like you said the the retread like i felt like uh bianca is really lost in this movie yeah absolutely. As compared to the rescuers and then um bernard is he's a little more like it's in some ways he's he's the better b story where he's he's working the whole movie to be able to propose to to bianca um but yeah the even with him you just i don't know it is a retread because in the first movie you're not really sure what he's capable of. He's he's the the janitor. Now he's already been the hero once, uh, but he's still kind of playing that. Uh, you know, because Jake is there, he's he's seeming to be kind of a doofus and can't get it together, even though you know that's not true about him. So it kind of it, as a sequel that plays weird too. Yeah, I I agree, and I mean maybe if I hadn't seen. The Rescuers, which I probably hadn't the first time I saw this. And I, I should say we were watching it the other day, and I, I told Victoria I've never seen this movie. And then there were jokes in the movie that I could fill in. Like I knew they were going to turn Frank into a purse. Uh, so, so I must have seen the movie. But but I, I'm sure I saw it before I saw The Rescuers because I didn't see The Rescuers until I was an adult. And so I, I think in some ways this movie might be better if you don't know the original movie. Yeah. Which in some ways they might have been counting on. The original came out in 1977, so that's what it's a while it's ago. Thir- it's it's 13 years before this yeah. movie. Yeah. So they're they're hitting basically. I mean, they're they're thinking that 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 demographic, if they're doing the cowabungas and stuff, right? Like they're not trying to hit that same demographic that had watched the movie 13 years prior. And this is 1990, so we're still pretty early in the uh, the VHS boom well and in fact the rescuers the original wasn't even released on vhs or uh, laser disc until after rescuers down under was so i don't know if it was forgotten because i don't i don't really have a sense of um how many people went to the road shows you know we've talked about this before they they used to in lieu of home video they would re-release these movies every seven years to theaters. so i mean probably th- there had been one uh road show re-release after the original release between between the original release and this one, uh, and maybe they re-released that movie the year before this just to get people pumped up about the sequel. But it it's so different that if you watch them as a double feature, it, you would you would really I think feel that jerk from uh, from sad 1977 rescuers to uh, excitable 1990 rescuers. Yeah, absolutely. In, in tone, of course, in fact, this movie is much closer to the Rescue Rangers cartoon from the 1990s with Chip and Dale in it, uh, a show that I loved. Yeah, and I love the Rescue Rangers, too. And I, I guess apparently the Rescue Rangers was originally supposed to be a Rescuers spinoff television show. Oh, interesting. And then, and then they decided to give it to Chip and Dale instead for whatever reason. Um, Not a bad so, decision. 
no, not a bad decision. Uh, like I said, I really liked uh, the Rescue Rangers cartoon, and so, but maybe, yeah, maybe that's part of the the reason why this this feels so different is <laughs> maybe it should have been Chip and Dale as the uh, as the rescuers in this, you know. <laughs> Well, I mean, the the problem there is there's still a lot of heaviness here. So, um, the the Rescuers is notable for being incredibly heavy, right? It's a movie about child uh, trafficking, essentially. And this is too. And the the bad guy here is, if anything, scarier than Madame Medusa. Like he, you know, he's he's not a comical bad guy the way Fat Cat on uh, Rescue Rangers is. So I I don't know that Chip and Dale would have worked here either. I just uh, it, in, in fact, the characters we have work. They just don't feel like the characters from the original. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think that's a really well good way to say it. Like they they work fine, but they're they're not they're not the same. Hashtag think... not my Bianca. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and I think you see it a little bit in the uh, the the charm of the artwork in the first one as well. Uh, so well, the first one's so chintzy, right? It's 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 a cheaper movie than this one yeah absolutely uh, and but there's there's a there's something to that i mean the, where i really felt it was i mean we spent i feel like i i haven't gone back to listen to it but i feel like we spent quite a bit of time on our rescuers episode talking about that new york and how yeah gritty and like new yorkish it felt right and uh here it's been replaced by uh, I mean, there's there's barely any New York in it, but the New York that is in it is is the computer animated super of the 1990s. So it's like super boxy, flat. Like there's nothing to it at all, you know. Um, great for the time, I'm sure, but hard to put yourself back into that mindset of being able to look at that and say like, wow, this looks so real, <laughs> because it obviously does not look real at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how that works, isn't it? Like objectively, this is the much better animated movie. Even even making allowances for the 1990s CGI, like there's some really really wonderful animation sequences here. And yet, if you asked me which one's the better movie, I'm gonna pick The Rescuers, you know, a hundred times. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. There there is some really nice animation here, and I I um, we should we should spend some time talking about that. But the this is the first movie where they 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 went completely away from. There's no cameras at all. It's all um, you know scanned in or whatever they did you know to to animate it via computers. So um, I mean the the drawings are still hand drawn, but they're, it's all animated within a computer. So I think you can see that in certain places, you know, um, especially when it when it is the obviously drawn inside a computer like the buildings and stuff but well that opening sequence where you're shooting across the outback mm-hmm. i mean i'm sure in 1990 that looked amazing in 2020 it looks very much like it was made on a computer in 1990 yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so and and i do think it's worth the effort to try and put yourself into the mindset of the of the creator i was just you know i was i was watching a video yesterday um from matthew milliner uh there's an interview series with him and he's talking about just the philosophy of art matthew milliner is the art history professor at um Wheaton College in Illinois, and he's he's internet famous, I guess. I, I don't know how how well known he is outside of certain circles, but that, certainly I enjoy following him on on Twitter and reading his blog and uh, watching all of his videos that he does because he's he's a very fascinating and interesting man. But anyway, uh, he was talking about you know with his students, he tries to get them to be able to to conjure up in their imagination any century so that they can. You know, they can kind of place themselves not perfectly within that century, but at least enough within that century to appreciate what they're seeing. And so, but even having lived through 1990, it's hard to put yourself back into that place to to really appreciate some of the uh, the early uh, computer graphics. I feel like. Well, let's talk about that, Josh, because I I think that's interesting. So one of the things we like about the Xerox era. Um, and and we, we talked about this over and over again, even though objectively the animation in 101 Dalmatians in Robin Hood and the Rescuers, objectively that animation is not very good. But we like it because it looks, well, it looks cheap 
in in some way, its particular brand of cheapness is appealing to us. So even though the animation's out of date, even though it's not as good as it could be, even though it's distracting in some ways, uh, we kind of dig it. But here we have animation from 1990 that's also out of date, that looks to our eyes cheap because it looks so dated, and yet we don't find it charming at all. Why do you think that is? Oh man, what a question. That's a great question. I I wonder if it's uh because it's almost like if if this is just off the top of my head, so may, may talk me out of this if it sounds ridiculous. But like we left the Xerox era kind of where it was. Like this the Xerox era kind of transformed into this computer animated era and the computer animated era, it's almost like it's a new branch on the, on the tree, if you will, of, you know, the, the family tree of animation. And so we've seen the progression from here. Uh, we've seen it get better and better and better. And so it's hard to look backwards hmm. at this old stuff. Whereas the Xerox stuff maybe retains a timelessness because it's a dead end on the tree. <laughs> no, I, I, I like that. Um, the the idea that th- this is so familiar as to we we recognize its weaknesses and yet the original rescuers and the other movies of that era um, we've been separated from them because nobody makes movies using that technique anymore. Yeah, maybe. I wonder too if there's. I mean, as long as we are on the Christian Humanist Network, I wonder if there is more of a human quality to those other movies too, though. You know, like. I mean, they're still using a machine. They're still using the Xerox, but I, I don't know. You're just closer to it. You're closer to the original drawings in a way. I mean, that was the va- that was the, what the animators loved about the Xerox era, right? Is that you see every line that they drew exactly as they drew it, and it's not cleaned up. It's still messy, you know. Whereas with this computer stuff, it, it's just a little too clean, mm-hmm. um, especially at the beginning. Like computer animation has advanced to the point where. Um, you can make stuff that looks lived in now in a computer, but in the in the '90s you couldn't. It's so it's so lifeless. So yeah, maybe that's- I, I I think I think there's something to that as well. That even at its coldest, those Xerox films they're still kind of warm. Whereas there's really nothing warm about that opening sequence here. It's and it, it's clearly there just to show off their uh, fancy new computer technology. Yeah, and I want to talk about that a little bit too uh, in a, in a minute if we want to move off this topic or if we're ready to move off it now. I can go now. Did you have more to say about the? Uh, do you do you have other theories or, or other ideas about why we we like the the '70s stuff more than the '90s stuff? No, I don't know that I do. I it, it there's something about it that seems akin to the current craze for cassette tapes, which. I understand collecting vinyl. We have vinyl. Um, I, a good good piece of vinyl really does sound better than uh, than digital files. But a cassette tape, like why on earth would anybody want to listen to that? It sounds like it, it always adds a hiss. It doesn't sound good. There's no way to make it sound good. And and maybe there's something. Maybe I can understand the cassette tape phenomenon better by watching the rescuers and noting how I feel about the animation of that movie. So I want that sparked something in me too. If if I wonder if part of that going back to cassette tapes and stuff is just an acknowledgement of how um, intrusive technology feels on our lives, and how I think a lot of us know that. I mean, I spend more time on Twitter or Instagram or whatever than I wish I did, right? Like, if I have to actually sit down and look at it, it's it's embarrassing to me. And I often right. try – I try to limit myself on how much I spend on that sort of stuff. But it's intrusive and it's uh, – it's, you know, it's it's – what it's like mind candy you know like it's just easy um and cheap but i know it's not good for me and so the idea of um a, a simpler time <laughs> you know like an an easier time when it wasn't quite as oppressive in our lives you know <laughs> like a, there's a there's a there's a thing like i mean uh we talked about this before too like how when when you have the entire recorded history of the world available on demand and streaming 
it cheapens it in a way. And there's a no end to it. It's overwhelming. Whereas a cassette tape, it's only what, twenty minutes and you've got to flip the you know, and you've got you've reached the end. You have to flip it over or, or find another cassette, you know? Like I wonder if that also is some is part of it. It's a very odd rejection of technology though, right? Because it's it's not rejecting technology and in fact the the cassette tape is if you if you look at the reaction to it when it came out, record labels were terrified that it would be the end of the music business because of course you could just copy somebody else's cassette tape without buying it. It's very quaint to to think of them being afraid of that now. So to, to return to the cassette tape from from the MP3 era or the streaming era now, it's not even really an MP3 era. Everybody but me streams. Um, it is a partial rejection of technology, but not a full one. And and likewise, uh, the the CGI is cold and lifeless and 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 inhuman. But the Xerox thing is too, right? I mean, the the whole point of the Xerox was it was really expensive to make Sleeping Beauty, and the Xerox copying technique made 101 Dalmatians much cheaper to make. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I mean, and they laid off 400 people, right? Like those are real working, living people uh, in order to do that. So you're right. I, I mean, I guess all I can say is that humans aren't rational. No, yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> I don't know. You're like, yeah, you're you're absolutely right that there's. Uh, it is a weird, a weird thing to latch onto. Um, and yet, right, the original rescuers, the the animation style. You like it better than the animation in this movie, right? Even though this movie has the 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 sequence where uh, what's what's the birds called? What's the bird called? Mahude. Yeah, something like that. The, the, I, I knew I was going to mess it up on here, so I was I was hoping that you would go first. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the the sequence where the eagle swoops down and catches. I mean, that is that is as as good in terms of animation as anything in the Little Mermaid, um, and yet. I would still take the the kind of cassette tape animation of the rescuers, the original over that. And that's, that's a weird position that I'm not sure I'm ready to defend. Yeah. Well, I wonder if that, if, so I think this is a, a better transition to where I was, I, I knew I wanted to go in this conversation at some point is I do feel like there is a, a pushing away in this movie. It doesn't draw you in, in the way that, some of the other movies have. So I, I, there's only one bonus feature that I could find about this movie. And in it, one of the animators is bragging about all this new stuff that they can do with the technology. And uh, he compares it to um, that opening sequence in Bambi when they're, they're first really using that um, multiplying camera. And it, they're going, you know, in the opening sequence of Bambi where you're in the woods and you're, it's really, really pulling you in. And he says a scene like that is just going to be a throwaway in this movie. Um, and in some ways he's right. Like technology for technology and the um, – like the objectiveness that you, you keep bringing up. You know, like objectively this movie does things that the animators of Bambi could not – have imagined a multiplane camera could not have done these animation sequences, uh, or not without costing <laughs> quadrillions of dollars, right? Uh, but the way that they use it, uh, it's never, it never seems to be to draw you in and and make you make you feel like part of the movie. It's always, it always pushes you into this, um, oh, like godlike position where you're seeing the you're seeing the gigantic scope even when he's on the bird uh you know flying high above the clouds at one point they zoom way out so that he's you know they're just a speck on the clouds you know like and so i wonder if that's another thing that we're feeling here with this movie is uh that it's it's always kind of pushing you away in a sense to see all that they can do you know to see the the big picture and and it 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 negatively affects the the actual interaction of the audience. Yeah, I like that. It's there's a, there's a kind of show off quality to the um, to to the big animation sequences here that, that's not present in something like The Little Mermaid, where the animation is really cool, but it very rarely feels like they're they're doing it just to prove to you they can do it. It feels like it's serving the story in some way. Yeah, they are Jake the Mouse. <laughs> the yeah. kangaroo mouse in some ways right like, a very unappealing character right yeah exactly and so 
yeah, I I I I I felt that as I was watching the movie. So the, I was I was wondering if you felt the same. Well, the other thing, and I I think we've talked about this on the air. I know that you and I have talked about this before, but limits are good for art. When you're able to do anything, you're probably not going to do your best work. There, there's something about having to work within boundaries that you chose or that you didn't choose that that forces you to be creative in a way that you wouldn't be able to if you could do literally anything. And so um, th- those early Walt Disney movies, they absolutely push the envelope, but they can't push it forever. You know, they, they, there are limits to the multiplane camera. And while it's really dazzling in some ways, it's still reined in. And as we move further and further into CGI, um, the limits become fewer and fewer. And because of that, unless you have someone with a real artistic vision, I, I think you're going to, you're going to see a lot of movies that are technically dazzling, but hollow. Yeah. I like what you said there. Like it really takes somebody coming in and setting their own constraints, you know, because of their vision. Like I'm going to do it this way. I think uh, of the white stripes. Um, and, I, I, I know. That's so I, funny. That's exactly where my mind went to. Right. But he has he has the, he had this really specific uh, set of rules that he adhered to. You know, um, I, I, I of course I can't just rattle off what they are, but there's no bass, for example. It's just the guitar and a piano and the drum kit, and they're going to wear these particular colors, and they're going to there, there's all these rules, and yeah, they're stupid rules. There's there's nothing intrinsically valuable about them, and yeah, he could have set some other set of arbitrary limits. Uh, but because because he st- stuck himself within those limits, he he his creativity became more interesting than it would be later with his solo records, Jack White's solo records, where he's um where he he doesn't have rules like that. He can kind of do whatever he wants. So th- that that's an example of arbitrary limits. But you think about the early, um, not even the early, the Beatles albums. The Beatles are limited. They're making their albums on a on four tracks. So like today, I think most drum kits get get twelve tracks. If that if that gives our listeners some idea of of how few tracks are four tracks. So they 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 use those four tracks and they make these incredibly lush uh, recordings and and they do it by pushing the envelope but having to work within limits. And I I just I just worry that as we get further and further into computer animation, those limits disappear, and with it the the kind of magic of pushing against the limits disappears. Yeah, very well said. I wonder <laughs> I wonder if that's actually part of the uh our like the limits that they're setting for themselves now are well let's remake a movie that's already been made. <laughs> <laughs> Back when there was limits, you know, like let's like we can't figure out how to find the constraints, so the constraints will be we have to we have to basically do shot for shot what was done when there was constraints. Right. Well, I, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to make it sound like we're rejecting CGI because we're not. I mean, I'm not anyway. Maybe you are. But but I mean, there's there's lots of Disney and Pixar movies in the in the 21st century that are primarily computer exclusively com, computer generated animation that I think are really wonderful movies that have a vision and all that stuff. So I, I mean I don't want to I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I, I I think people can kind of get high on the technology that allows them to do whatever they want, and in getting high on that, they forget to do something interesting. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and I yeah, I, I agree with you. I uh, you know uh, some of my favorite movies are um, some of those uh, Pixar movies, so I'm definitely not anti computer animation or CGI or anything like that. I think too, like the other thing is, um, you know, I play a fair I. I used to play a fair amount of video games and I still wish I could play more, but I just don't have the uh, space in my life for it. But I mean, video games technology has also gotten to the place where, you know, some of these epic sort of um, vistas and stuff that they're trying to show us, like video games do it now, you know, like I, I can get something way better on my phone, you know, like, so I don't know. It's just, it's weird. Like just the way, the way the technology has changed and the way, the way it's shifted and it, it, it's um it's it's nice to see uh where it came from in a way but it it is just harder to get back into that space of saying like wow this is this is really awesome uh, maybe what we should say 
is that you can't substitute technology for vision. Yeah, that's I think I think what <laughs> you could say you can't substitute anything for vision maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean vision is really what makes the movie, you know. And uh in a lot of ways or whatever endeavor of life, I guess. Um, and, and I also don't want to make the mistake of treating the rescuers like it's an all time classic. I, I know, I know we had listeners when we posted that episode who, who were talking about how it's their favorite. And I don't want to down, I don't want to make them feel bad, but I, I would not put that in the top tier. And yet that movie is interesting and weird weird is the word i'm going to keep coming back to for the original in a way that this one's just not this is this this feels like a very standard issue action adventure uh film yeah and actually i i'm surprised we spend as much time on this as as we have and i think it's i think it's a really interesting conversation but i i i want to just clarify that i i actually i don't this movie's not that bad um or it's definitely it's the all that stuff that we just talked about of the technology and stuff, I think it does hinder the movie in some real ways. But at the same point, like it's it's not the it's not the albatross around the neck of the movie. Spectrum. As it were, <laughs> it's going to be. <laughs> you know, like we're going to get to that place. I think very. Uh, you know, after this um, Renaissance era, the dinosaur. Uh, I think is going to be our uh, our exhibit A. Right, where the CGI does get to the point where like they've completely lacked a vision. But I think there is uh there is some vision for this movie. You know? no, th- I mean, th- this is not a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination. It's just not yeah. a rescuer's movie. Right. Well and because the vision for this movie was let's make an action adventure movie. You know? So I mean that was that was exactly what they were going for, is like we're gonna make the first real Disney animated action adventure movie. And uh in some ways they succeeded and in some ways not. Like I said, like I think it, it could have it could have used a little more room to breathe. There could have been a little more um soft scenes or or something to kind of uh let you let you feel the the tension a little more or let you uh just live in the movie a little more uh but they they decided to that they were going to push the pedal to the metal and and just ride it all the way through the movie and that's that's what they did so yeah but there 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 is some there's some really good stuff in this movie there are some really good performances or at least there's one really good performance uh, and and uh, there's some really fantastic animation. We mentioned the eagle uh, sequence. Uh, do you know who animated that sequence, Josh? Did you look this up? Um, I do, but I forget his name. Glenn Keane is his name. And I didn't even look to see what else he did. I just I he uh, did the 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 one really stellar piece of animation in the Fox and the Hound, which is the bear fight scene at the end. Oh, excellent! But okay. he is best that known. Makes sense. Uh, to many of our listeners, I suspect, as the oldest son in the comic strip The Family Circus, written by his father, Bill Keen. Glenn Keen is the inspiration for Billy from The Family Circus, uh, which, when I read that, it blew my mind. It, <laughs> it melted my brain. The, the, guy, the guy responsible for some of the least funny cartoons in the, uh, in, in the, in the Sunday Funnies uh, gave birth to the guy responsible for uh, really one of the the towering uh, monuments of of 1980s Disney animation. Let's say, yeah, wow, that is that is remarkable. Yeah, Glenn Keane. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that, but that is amazing. Huh, fascinating. The other the other uh, animated sequence I really liked. Was the one where uh, McLeish, McLeach, McLeach. I always want to call him McLeish because of the the poet uh, Archibald McLeish, but McLeach, the bad guy, is uh, he's he wants to eat some eggs and he he takes them out of a toolbox and there's this great uh, scene where we don't see his pet uh, lizard joanna but she is stealing eggs while he's yelling at her and i I mean i don't know how to describe it but that's a really fantastically animated scene yeah absolutely it's really good it's uh, it's good comic timing it's yeah that that scene is i i agree it's it's an excellent scene in the movie so these are not joanna eggs (laughs) <laughs> these are not Joanna eggs. And then he asks her to open her mouth, and she holds the egg out of out of the side of her mouth with her with her tongue, so that he can't see uh, that she's got it. 
In fact, I thought all of her animation was just great. Like that that character was really incredibly well drawn. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of really good stuff in this movie. We should spend a little time on the good stuff because I feel like we we hammered it a little bit at the beginning and <laughs> I don't know if anybody who really likes this movie stuck around. Well, um, it's weird, right? Because we hammered it for being too good in comparison to the original <laughs> Rescuers and thus not as good as it. I, I don't know. <laughs> That's right. They screamed at their podcast player and threw it on the ground already. They're not listening to us anymore. But yeah, there is a lot of really good stuff in this movie. And Joanna is, I think, uh, she's... She's a great villain. Like she's a great animal villain. She's uh, not to make all the comparisons to the rescuers, but she's I think way better than the the alligators. Yeah. Or I mean, she's a, I think in some ways like this is where they clearly were thinking sequel. You know, like she's she's similar to those alligators, but I I feel like um, yeah she's. Uh, the the fir- when you're first introduced to her, there's the little jump scare there, uh, where she you know screams into the pit or growls into the pit or whatever a, a lizard does. But then, uh, yeah, she's comic relief, but she's also clearly menacing. Um, the the scene where uh, Cody is trying to escape with the other animals and she comes in and catches them is, is a really good one. So, yeah, what what did you enjoy with Joanna? I, what what you said, and I I think um I think part of the reason she gets to be a better animal sidekick than the alligators from the original movie is that there is no human sidekick, so she kind of plays the role both of the alligators and of Snoop's Madame Medusa's idiot henchman. So she gets abused by um by McLeach, and so you can kind of feel for her at the same time. She's scary and funny and. It's it's a really good uh, really good animation job, a really good visual performance from uh, whoever her lead animator was. Her voice was provided by Frank Welker, uh, who also does the voice of the eagle. Uh, which, if you go back and listen, that is not a real eagle; that is a human being making that noise. Frank Welker does a lot of the animal noises in in cartoons since the 1980s. He's also, I believe, the original Fred from Scooby Doo. I am really impressed that he did that eagle noise, which actually I was, I was surprised you don't – maybe you know this and you just didn't say it, Michael, but do you know that that's not what eagles actually sound like? <laughs> is it not? I thought it no, was. I know because that's the sound that is always used for eagles. Um, I learned this at, actually at the Atlanta Zoo, um, I believe, is where I learned this fact. fact. So in the, or it may have been – I, I was some zoo somewhere. I, it may not have been Atlanta. But anyway, uh, I was – they had a – the presentation with the zookeepers and they were going through the different raptors and stuff and uh eagles make a very pathetic sounding huh cry that's a bummer uh, does, not, does not mass i know it doesn't their their majesty as as a bird and so um it's always replaced i can't i can't remember i'll have to google it later and uh we yeah some somebody on the on the internet knows but like there's a the the actual that's, that is an actual bird cry. It's just not an eagle bird cry. So I, I had no idea. And, but it is Frank Welker doing it rather than whatever bird actually does it. I, yeah. I have heard, I think I heard it from a Futurama DVD commentary, that Frank Welker can do a, a flock of birds at the same time. So he can do multiple <laughs> birds coming out of different parts of his mouth at the same time. He's, he's apparently amazing. But his performance is Joanna and um, uh, whatever the eagle's name is. Uh, bo- both of those performances are really fabulous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were those the performances you mentioned earlier? You said there's at least one really good performance. Were you talking about the animals or were you talking about um... – I was talking about George C. Scott as, uh, as Percival McLeach. Yeah. <laughs> Chewing the scenery in such a way as to make his performance in Dr. Strangelove look uh, understated. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's just really great in this. Go go ahead and say some more about him. Oh, I mean, he's... um I don't I don't know how to describe it except that it's huge. It's it's this this huge hammy performance that is nevertheless uh, really threatening. I mean, I'm not I'm not afraid of him, but uh, I, I you certainly understand why Cody would be. He's he's a real threat, and yet he's uh, he's very very funny. And Disney villains are usually one or the other, right? We talked about this with the original Rescuers. Madame Medusa's not funny. Um, but he, he uh, the the performance is so big you almost can't help but laugh. Yeah, I think one of the things that adds to his largeness is 
it's not every scene, but it's often uh, that he's kind of drawn from a like as though the camera is below him and looking up at him. Uh, and so he's always or not always, but often looming over you as a, as a character. Um, and I agree. He's he's um, the standout performance in the movie for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's not even close. There's nobody else in the movie that, that is at his level. And of course, I mean, George C. Scott's a great actor with a with a you know proud film tradition. But um, this is one of his last roles, I think, and uh, it's uh, you know it's a good one. Yeah. Well, the other thing is there's there's really no other. I mean, we talked about Cody kind of being the main character, but Cody doesn't get a lot of uh, like he doesn't say a lot. You know, like, and then um, the, I guess the good guys are kind of, you know, they're divided. Like you've got, you've got so many of them, whereas McLeach is is the villain. You know, so he gets a lot, a lot more time, a lot more performance. Did you feel bad for him when he went over the waterfall? Um, I was. It, it it was just another another villain falling over an edge. <laughs> yeah, know? it's the it's it's kind of the Disney way to get rid of a villain is that they have to fall off of something. So. And and the TV tropes term for that is Disney villain death. So <laughs> yeah, I mean that started all the way back with. Well, I can't remember now. Does uh does the the Wicked Witch and Snow White fall off a cliff? She I, does. She she's trying she to knock that. Right? She's trying to knock that boulder on top of the. Uh, dwarves. She's trying to push it off with a big stick, and lightning strikes the precipice. So she yeah. falls down, and then the rock falls on top of her. That's right. I, I knew there was multiple endings to her. Like it was the lightning and the rock fell, and I couldn't remember if there was also her fall as well. But yeah. So I mean, it's it's pretty classic by this point. <laughs> I, I gotta wonder though if crocodiles really hang out that close to waterfalls. It's, I, I can I can think of places it would be better for them to hang out. Yeah. But. Yeah, that one last wave from Joanna. <laughs> she she recognizes what's happening before he does. Is pretty. Uh, I don't, it's. I, I think it's. It lightens the mood enough that I didn't feel bad for him. <laughs> then uh, he also drives that incredible truck that I guess he built himself. The one with the tank treads. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And, and I think the the one really good piece of CGI animation in the movie is the the, the truck moving. Yeah. Yeah, and the action sequence on that is is good too. You know, like that's that's one of the the highlights I think of the of the mouse story is when um you know they they're first on the truck and they're they're going with McLeach uh, to chase after um, Cody because Cody is going to lead them to you know unknowingly unwittingly going to lead them to the eagle's nest uh and he's following along which and not not a great stealth vehicle but (laughs) (laughs) i wondered that it makes so much noise (laughs) yeah well when they first introduce it it's like running through the forest and just tearing down trees but anyway uh minor minor plot point there but uh yeah the they're they're caught in the treads of it and uh they swing across there's the indiana jones style swing swing across on a rope and it's 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 really great again a a great animated scene and just i think one of the highlights of the the fun uh action adventure stuff in this movie i would actually say that the initial scene when you first see the truck is pretty cool it's an over it's a it's a long overhead shot and and you just see st- uh, smoke coming up and the trees falling down and birds flying out of the way. I thought that was a really well done shot. Yeah, and it's 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 perfectly in line with his character, right? Yeah. So he's a poacher. He's a poacher. Yeah. Is this the first Disney movie with heavy-handed environmentalist themes? Um, I mean, unless you count Bambi, right? Uh, Which I don't. <laughs> I would I would not call that heavy handed. Not not yeah. like this. I mean, this movie may as well have been subtitled uh, "The Rescuers Down Under." Uh, colon poaching is bad. <laughs> it was Captain yeah. Planet levels of uh, <laughs> of environmentalism. Yeah. I, and by the way, poaching is bad. I, I, you know, I, I <laughs> I'm not denying that the message is true. It's just heavy handed. Thanks for clarifying. <laughs> I want to take a hard stance against poaching. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. 
So, um, yeah, McLean, she's great. Can she's you good. guess what character in this movie I hated? There's always one. <laughs> Frank. Yes. <laughs> yes, I hate I'm Frank. I'm actually with you on this one. Frank did not add anything to this movie for me. It's a weird scene, right? Because it doesn't pay off at any point in the movie. You could have cut it, and it wouldn't have made any difference whatsoever. And Actually, my kids were legitimately disappointed about this. Like they, they wanted to know what happened to those other animals and why didn't we ever see. And like, they, they were, you know, they're, they're waiting for like a post credit scene. And I was like, those aren't really a thing yet. In 1990. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like they want some, some sort of wrap up on that storyline that we just were not given at all. No, nothing. Yeah. They just leave them there locked in cages. Yeah. So, I mean, he's drawn nicely. I, I'm not. I'm not denying that. Like he's, you know, like his his animation isn't bad or anything like that. It just it's a super weird scene. He's a super goofy character with just not not a lot to. He's not as funny as I think they thought he was. Yeah, he. Um, I I share Krebs the koala's uh, disgust with him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the koala was. <laughs> over the top <laughs> i i think they included that scene both because the movie was short and also because um the whole reason to have this movie in australia is to show the bizarre variety of australian wildlife right so they, they try to get as much of it in as they can that's right yeah so we've got a kangaroo and a kookaburra and a, a koala and um platypus a kid platypus oh yeah. there's a wombat at the beginning of the movie yeah, so that's nice. I mean, nice touches, I guess. I wonder how popular this movie is in Australia. Like, I wonder if it's beloved. Do you think that they're upset that nobody in the movie has an Australian accent? <laughs> I think literally the only two people in the movie who have an Australian accent are the koala and uh, and what's the uh, Jake, the kangaroo rat. Are we sure that people in Australia have Australian accents? I mean, maybe it's, is it possible that the Australians just put that on when they're outside of Australia to it, throw the rest of us off? It does kind of seem like a put on, doesn't it? <laughs> that whole Australian thing. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was. I don't know if we have any listeners from Australia, but if we do, we'd love to hear from you. How does the rescuers rescuers down under play in Australia? Is Jake a national hero? (laughs) Probably not. I can't imagine Australians like Crocodile Dundee since he's just a collection of stereotypes about their country. Yeah. Slash continent. Yeah. So, yeah, Jake is, I mean, Jake is there to be annoying. Yeah, he's he's there to to make you feel that Bernard's relationship with Bianca is at jeopardy. But you don't feel that. Like, there's no sense. I, 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 there's just no way to fear that she's going to leave him for that guy. Yeah. Or that that's even the type of guy that Bianca is interested in. Bianca right. is clearly interested in guys like Bernard. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, at least if you've seen The Rescuers, you know that. I guess right. if, you've, if you've not seen The Rescuers, maybe there's a little more uh, trepidation there. But. But if you've not seen The Rescuers, you're probably not on Bernard's side anyway. I mean, you probably don't have a lot of feelings for him. Yeah. Point. Yeah, because he really doesn't come through in a big way until the end right. of this movie. When he tames, um, there's, the, there's when he tames the Razorback. Yeah, exactly. So um, there's a that telling little scene where uh, Bianca is trying to comfort Cody and says, oh, don't worry, Bernard's still out there. And then... Uh, Jake's like, yeah, <laughs> old Berno, you know, and then he's like, nice job or whatever, you know. And she's like, no, I'm serious. So, yeah. And he does save the day, so that's nice. Yeah, it's really nice. I love that he saves the eagle eggs. So yes, uh, this is a. So this, I was another point in the movie that I thought was really well done. He gets uh, left there, so they're in the eagle's nest, and uh, McLeach is them and cody doesn't know this cody is trying to protect the eagle eggs and the rescuers come and they're like cody you're in danger this is a trap mcleach is coming and uh of course mcleach does come he traps the eagle and uh cody grabs onto 
the the bag that the eagle is trapped in as um, McLeach is raising it with the crane. Uh, Jake and Bianca also get onto the bag with Cody. Uh, Bernard is left behind, and then you don't see him again for a long time. You see, like, there's this whole other scene, and uh, then McLeach is saying to Joanna, "Do you want to go?" Eat the legs and she's all excited to go eat them and she goes down there to eat them there's no like uh there's there's not there's no way to stop her and there's there's at least i was caught up enough in the movie to not think about i was like surely she's not going to eat the eggs but i don't know how they're going to stop this you know but then uh of course it turns out that bernard has hidden the eggs because he's still there and replace them with rocks and replace them with rocks yeah so yeah really i thought it was a really nice moment like yeah it was um the filmmakers realizing that you know when people are watching a movie that that they're caught up in the movie so they're not thinking always three steps ahead about oh well this person's still there and of course they're going to hide the eggs or whatever you know so is bernard yeah. quietly the greatest of the disney heroes could be yeah he's yeah I mean, he's he's the uh, we talked about this so much in our first one, the in the I mean, in the rescuers episode, you know, like he's a different kind of hero, yeah. Than I think we see in a lot of the other ones. So, um, in that way, he's definitely the quietest, just in the way that he's he's a different sort of hero. Well, and I mean, maybe to return to the difference between these two movies, maybe that's the problem with this one is it's not quiet, it's not um, average every day, it feels much bigger. And and that just doesn't work for the characters as well. But Bernard yeah. is the kind of character who would best serve the would best serve the side of good by being left behind like that. I, that that is a nice that is a nice moment. Yeah, an excellent moment. What else? What else do we want to say? There's no music in this movie to speak of. <laughs> and really. its its failure is largely responsible for them not doing non musicals for the next decade. Yeah, well, and the back-to-back Little Mermaid, right? So Little Mermaid is the huge musical that's hugely successful, and then <laughs> they try another non-musical, and so yeah, that's it, it makes sense. They're they're getting both the positive and the negative on that one. Makes sense that they decide to go all musicals for a while. D- Disney overreacts to stuff like that. It seems to me um, when when something, and it's not just Disney; it's all of Hollywood. When something fails, instead of saying that wasn't a good movie <laughs> or, you know, maybe it failed because it opened against one of the highest grossing movies of all time, or maybe it failed because it's based on a property people don't remember or whatever. What they do instead is saying, Oh, it's failed. So, uh, people don't like cartoons that aren't musicals or it's failed. So people don't like action adventure cartoons. It's, it's a weird, um, it's a weird overreaction to things. It's like when Catwoman, remember the movie Catwoman with Halle Berry? Uh, nope. <laughs> yeah. Well, when that failed, Hollywood decided that the reason people didn't go see it is not that it had terrible word of mouth and it looked terrible and it was a bad movie. It was that people don't want movies about female superheroes. Yeah, you're you're right. This is a classic uh, Hollywood error. So, and it's unfortunate because I mean I think there's there's plenty of room for uh, action adventure. Um, animation. Well, and, and they're gonna they're gonna make a very similar error fifteen years later when they shut down their two D animation program because their early two thousands two D movies are flopping and Pixar movies are doing so great, not figuring the truth, which is that Pixar movies are good movies and the and movies like Home on the Range and Brother Bear are not very good movies. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's back to that old thing of like people don't want to look at the it's you, you don't want to look directly at your problems, you know, like right. the things that are going to solve it. You know, you don't want to look directly at that. It's too painful. So, but Josh, I just want to remind uh, you that the you people know. making these rash decisions make 50 million dollars a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's unfathomable. It really is like this is not a great movie, right? And and as as we both said, we prefer the original Rescuers. But the idea that this movie opened against Home Alone and didn't beat Home Alone means that uh, 
all cartoons should be musicals. I that that's just so baffling. Yeah, we did get a lot of really good musicals out of it. Though, that's so. true. <laughs> it kind of worked out all right. Yeah, and, and this movie, this movie's reputation is hurt in the fact that it, it is the one loser in this really remarkable string of successes. Yeah, it's really true. So, <laughs> and it could be different, right? Like, I mean, you never know, like how things are going to go. Or, I mean, definitely at the time they didn't know how it was going to go. Like, at at the time that this movie came out, The Little Mermaid is. A one really good movie in a strings of kind of eh. That's right, yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so, yeah, it, 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 it's not until hindsight that we know that this is the one stinker in this huge string of, of successes, you know. Does so. it feel like a Disney Renaissance movie to you, or does it feel left over? Yeah, it feels... If, if I... So, like, this is, like, one of those things where, like, you get, you get a blank united states map in front of you or something and you have to like try and fill it all in right like if i had the blank the blank cannon in front of me and i had to like try and put them in order i would definitely put this in the the pre you know the pre-renaissance movies yeah except the animation the animation in this is that's true leaps and bounds above everything from the 1980s it's much closer to uh little mermaid and beauty and the beast it's just that the story feels left over from the dark ages yeah, no, you're right. That's that's true. Yeah, so I guess it would depend on how <laughs> how many clues I had to go on. <laughs> yeah, if you saw a picture of it or something, you know, then then you would know that based on the animation style that it's. You know. The the one good thing about its failure is it meant that Disney didn't try to do any more um, theatrical sequels until what Ralph breaks the internet. Yeah. Oh, that's true too. Like, well. So this kind of opened a door in a way uh, to our current era, I feel like, because any theatrical or home video or anything sequels until this, this is the first sequel of any kind. Hmm. Um, And then, of course, we moved it like I'm not I'm not pinning all of the. <laughs> all of the what the pain of, of the Disney decisions on this movie, but it is interesting that it's the first in the in that kind of line of of, uh, of thinking. Well, what's interesting to me is this is their second attempt at making a rescuer sequel. As we discussed, Oliver and Company was originally going to be a rescuer sequel. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. There, there obviously was a, a strong rescuers contingent within the studio. Isn't that weird? <laughs> of all the movies, it was a hit. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah, or oh, it's not a great movie. We talked about this. It's a it's a weird movie. It's weird. But I think it, that's good. I think that's what's good though is the weirdness. Like I'm glad that there's a strong weird contingent within Disney. You know, like uh-huh. that. Yeah, that I think is better than a strong rescuers contingent. But like, yeah, let's let's stay weird. That's that's good. And that doesn't exactly that. go away. I mean, there there's still some really weird. Disney features, and I'm, I'm thinking again about Wreck-It Ralph. What a bizarre idea for a movie. And yeah, that's a great movie, you know? And mm-hmm. it's, it's great because it's weird, and it's actually kind of sad the way that The Rescuers is sad, now that I think about it. Yeah. I, I think that's what that movie, the big thing that that movie had that this one doesn't, is sadness. There's this that one scene here in mm. Down Under with the, with the mother, but other than that, it, it lacks that deep uh, society-wide malaise that settled over the original movie. Yeah, that's really true. So I think the that's a another good segue into the the other thought that I had on this movie that I wanted to make sure that we talked about was I was thinking as I was watching this movie about Josh Larson's uh, book Movies or Prayers, and um, Josh Larson is a is another is another uh, well, much much more well-renowned than us uh, film critic. <laughs> we wouldn't <laughs> call us film critics. Um, he he writes for what? Do you know? You know, Chicago Tribune or something? I, I don't um, know. Uh, that might not be right. Anyway, he's he's big time. Whatever he is. Anyway, he has this book called uh, Movies or Prayers, which I I think is a really um, interesting book. On you know, he he just goes through the ways that. Um, humans are always kind of subconsciously crying out to someone, even if they don't acknowledge a someone, right? Like it's kind of, it's, it's so much an innate part of our being uh, that we do that. And so he kind of just categorizes how you can, 
how you can use that as a framework to look at movies. And so uh, he's got several different, um, you know, movies of lament, movies of joy, movies of rejoicing, movies of praise, and uh, movies of yearning. And I just really feel like this movie really fits into his category of movies of yearning. Like this movie is just really, um, there's a, it's, it's not a lament or, uh, the way that the rescuers was this this movie is a movie that is really i think longing for uh something transcendent and something uh i don't know like to to feel um like i said they, there's all this epicness in this movie and I feel like there's this sense of like where do I fit within this like this vastness is, is there a place you know like and, and I feel like you really see it in those eagle scenes you know like the mm-hmm. the feeling of of wanting to be be carried away to the heights by an eagle you know to to be able to jump off a cliff um, and and spread out knowing that you're safe. Uh, is is a complete kind of I think human longing for a better or a different sort of experience in the world, and um, and then even also on the small scale, like there's the yearning of Bernard uh, wanting Bianca, you know, and wanting this moment with her that he keeps not having in, until the end of the movie. So um, I think on both the large and the small scale, this this movie is kind of like. Uh, it's it's echoing some of our inner human desires for transcendence or for love, for belonging, um, all those sorts of things. That's beautiful, Josh. Thank you, Michael. Um, I recommend the book. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't talk about the rescuers down under in the book, but it definitely is uh, a result of my reading that book that I can I can think in this way. So that's about all I have, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I have much else either. I'm just I'm very interested in my reaction to this movie because when I was watching it I I, I haven't changed my mind it was it was this is a better movie than the rescuers in some ways and yet I like it much less than the rescuers so I I, I don't know what to make of that other than the rescuers is a profoundly weird movie uh, in the Disney canon and uh, and they might have been foolish to try to treat this as a sequel to it yeah and I think I think like what you said near the beginning of this episode, like if you like the rescuers, there's nothing really to <laughs> make this a movie that you would also like, you know. So it's just too different. It's too different. So um, I think it's fine if you like this movie more than the rescuers, or if you like the rescuers more than this movie. They're they're very different movies. So I think in a lot of ways, it's just what what do you want from a movie? But um, if you like Chippendale Rescue Rangers, definitely watch the Rescuers Down Under. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and it is it's a fun it's a fun action adventure movie it's definitely not the best of genre uh you know there's you know if if you're really looking for that i i would recommend um (laughs) the indiana jones movies but (laughs) yeah uh for yeah for what it is it's 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 fun it's quick. It's a quick seventy something minute. Seventy seven yeah. minutes. It's very minutes. short, and it, and it still feels padded, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, should I kick it into the ending? Yeah, kick it in. Uh, all right. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Uh, we are on the old interwebs at. Uh, both christianhumanist.org is the the network address. There's also a website for this particular show at beforetheywere.live. Uh, you can help us continue this conversation by reaching out to us on Twitter. I'm at the underscore alt, and Michael is at quell bummer. No, kel bummer. Is that right? Yeah, but it's, it's spelled like quell. Yeah, I always mispronounce it. Um, anyway, we want to encourage you to set your podcast player's dials to the Christian Humanist Radio Network. We will find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going. So for Michael Farmer, I'm Josh altman Schofer. I just want to gratefully say that we know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on. So thank you for spending the time with us. Okay, that's it. I'm out of here. This is ridiculous. You can't leave me here alone. I'm gone. I'm gone.